All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of 1 Samuel. We left off in chapter 10, and that's where we'll pick back up today. Don't want to or don't need to do an entire uh, bring us up to speed here throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel. Just in terms of immediate context, we have Saul being anointed as king. And of course, this takes place basically privately with Samuel anointing uh, Saul. And then you have Saul's public coronation or Saul publicly um, proclaimed king. And we went through that account just at the close of last session. So that is uh, chapter 10, verse 17 and following. And let's simply, let's simply pick up there. We do, have, um, we do have these dynamics where we've seen uh, Saul's you know, personal shyness, and we see that in spades here, and yet the Lord sends upon him uh, the Spirit. You know, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you'll prophesy. And so Saul, who you know, we're told is a shock to his, his, his brothers, his family and friends because he's apparently not a very spiritual guy and suddenly the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he's prophesying, you know, he's, he's speaking the words of God and proclaiming the things of God. And so that's out of character for him. It seems like the boldness is out of character for him as well. And so um, we see that like verse 17 and following up to the conclusion, which is great. Um, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and just skipping down a, another verse, and, and he says to them plainly, but you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. So once again, this is not a, this is not a theological high point, but a theological low point as they you know, coronate Saul. Again, they've rejected the Lord and they've rejected their status as his own chosen people and kingdom. Instead, they want an earthly king, and in wanting an earthly king, they want to become like all the other kingdoms of the earth. So this is, in many senses, an apostasy and a turning away from God. Even so, God is not turning away from them and allows this to take place. Um, he simply warns them by way of Samuel ahead of time that this is not going to go how they think it's going to go. Um, their king is going to end up being like all the kings of the earth. He's going to take from them instead of give to them. And that, of course, is juxtaposed with God as their king, especially enacted in the ark. And the ark, who again is captured by the Philistines and then goes city by city trouncing the Philistines and then is returned to the people. In other words, the kind of king that God is, is a king who fights the battles himself, a king who doesn't demand from the people but gives to the people, who doesn't demand the people to, to fight for him but he fights for them, or to save him but he saves them. And so, of course, again, in the background of this text, you know, right, like it's like this tapestry of what's going on here in First Samuel, but right behind this is we see Christ our king. We see the one who is crowned in thorns. We see the one who lays down his life for us rather than requires us to lay down our lives for him. And, and he fights for us and bestows salvation upon us. So that's really what this text is meant to do, is we're supposed to see our, our King Jesus um, in and through this text, behind this text, and then by, you know, by extension, then we're going to see everything that, that Saul is not 
we're still going to see God's blessing. We're going to see Saul point forward in some ways positive and in more ways negative, perhaps, uh, to the coming of Christ and the manifestation of Christ in the flesh. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Christ is already behind this text. So we get into um, the selection of Saul, and we see that this is all done by Lot, which is to say by God's will. And so this confirms, you know, not only for Samuel and for Saul, but then for all the people publicly, that Saul is in fact God's choice. So verse 20 and following then, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So again, narrowing down, narrowing down, narrowing down, finally it's Saul. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, I love this, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Just so perfect. It's just great. Like this would make an excellent scene in a movie. All right, verse 23 then. (laughs) It takes the Lord to point this out too. It's so funny. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. I mean, already here in Saul, the very first king of Israel, so to speak, you have this like type and anti-type or way he's like Christ and way he isn't like Christ. In, in the way he's like Christ, I mean, he's not, there's almost like a double meaning we can get here where, um, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. I mean, that's certainly true for, for Jesus. And then, um, but, but, what is meant here specifically is, is the layer of meaning that he's taller than all the people from the shoulders upward. That is, um, this is the way he's not like Christ. Is He looks the type. He looks the kingly type, and of course he isn't. Christ doesn't look the kingly type, and of course he is. You know, there's no form or comeliness that we should desire him, Psalm 53. So again, we see those kinds of dynamics and reversal dynamics here in this text as well. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So, even though they're doing this thing that is profoundly unfaithful to God, God is still blessing them, you know, pouring out his spirit and changing the, on Saul and changing the heart of Saul. You know, you see that back in chapter 10, verse 9, God gave him another heart. And then here too, uh, God touching the hearts of these men of valor, you know, these are going to be people who uh, support Saul and back Saul and um, perhaps even, you know, um, Form, form like sort of his, in, his military, you know. I think, in fact, I think that that's, yeah, that's how the study Bible takes it. Perhaps the beginning of, yeah, perhaps maybe is the key word, the beginning of Israel's official army. God moved them to support Saul militarily. That's these mighty men of valor. Verse 27, But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace. Okay, so we see that not all of the people accept him, and not because they, not because they want Yahweh instead of him, 
They're not faithful in this. They too want a human king, just not Saul. And so here's kind of a double sin. They too reject God, and now they reject God's chosen, which is Saul. And how is Saul going to handle that? It is fascinating that, if you will, that this is his sort of the first thing he has to deal with as a king is these worthless fellows speaking against him. And the first thing he does is shows them mercy. Um, He held his peace. Uh, indicating what kind of kingship you know, God desires for his people to have, and that's a, a king who, of course, is just but also merciful. And that's, of course, true in Christ in the deepest sense and in the more superficial sense it's necessary for the left-hand kingdom rule of um, the nation-state of Israel. Okay, so that takes us through um, Saul being proclaimed king. Um, Maybe on Gibeah, where he goes, you can see that the study Bible says Saul's capital stronghold perhaps located on a bluff north of Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, again, the word perhaps in there, so a bit speculative. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Now, the Ammonites, as the study Bible points out, are descendants of Lot's younger daughter. They lived east of the territory of Gad near the upper regions of the Jabbok River. Okay, and so here they are um, in hostility against Israel. And sort of the first external challenge, we saw the first internal challenge in verse 27 here, the first external challenge. And this Nahash guy is like something straight out of the movies. He's pretty, uh, he's pretty wild. Let's take a look at this. So anyway, he, went, he goes up and besieges Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Which again, these are Israelites. They shouldn't be making a treaty with an enemy. In the first place, they should be relying on God. In the second place, you know, arguably they ought, to, they ought not be backing down, but going straight to the king, which they kind of do. But let's carry on. Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Yeah, so, so this was apparently Nahash's thing. <laughs> he would, of those he defeated or those who... Uh, surrendered to him, he would, he would gouge out their right eye, and so it would kind of be a testimony to everyone, like, oh, okay, Nahash beat you, or, or you bowed to Nahash. I mean, this guy's a, a wacko, to be sure. Not a likable character. All right, so that's his, that's his condition for peace. I'll slaughter all of you, or I'll have peace with you. You can pay me, you know. And, and I'll, you, I'll collect your taxes, um, and I'll just gouge out your right eye as part of the deal, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So then, verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us uh, seven days respite, that we may send messengers <clears throat> through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. I mean, this is interesting. So, so they say, that, like, the study note here, because the English is just not really clear, or at least it's clear, but unlo- it sounds very implausible. 
So the study note says, requesting a week's time for deliberation and help, they seem to accept Nahash's terms. Nahash is overly confident that the alarm and request for help would be futile. In other words, Nahash is so confident that he doesn't think Israel is going to come, so he permits this. And that really is the only way to you know, kind of make sense out of this. Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. I mean, wait, let, hold still while we go gather all our forces <laughs> to come against you. It sounds odd. Uh, apparently, Nahash accepts, and perhaps in the way that, um, that the Israelites here put it, there's like, while not like, there's a little bit of deceit, not in the sinful sense, but in the left-hand kingdom militaristic sense, political sense of like, we're about to give in, but you need to give us time. And so he, he thinks, yeah, no problem. Even if they get their armies, I'll beat them too. And nobody's going to come anyway. So that's the setup. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Which is interesting that there's that kind of unity here amongst the people. Um, but there is. And they may be weeping because now conflict with Nahash for their husbands and sons is inevitable. Um, verse 5, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And I've always found this interesting. I wish the study Bible had a note on it. Um, you know, what's he doing behind the oxen? Um, but Saul is uh, coming in from the field behind the oxen. Like, is he just, is he still, like, kind of living a relatively humble life at this point? I mean, is he still tilling the ground? That's the kind of question I have. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? Or is he shirking his kingly duties and role, kind of like this humility we've seen in the, or shyness would be a better word, that we've seen in the character of Saul? I don't know. Um, so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. So here once more, God does this miraculous intervention. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So Saul is transformed, again, from this not very kingly figure, whatever he's doing from behind the field and the oxen, like tilling the ground, kind of gone back to his old life. I, it's hard to know, but one thing is clear. You know, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and suddenly he, he goes from farmer to, to fierce warrior and from kind of this pacifist to, you know, this, this priestly figure. Because look at 7. He took a yoke of oxen um, and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers. And it brings to mind, remember, the priest with his concubine who cuts her up and sends her to all the different parts. Like It's kind of the parallel thing here, only... Um, albeit a very different context, of course. And that one, it would be hard to say that that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This one is, for certain. So he cuts off the oxen um, in pieces, sends them through all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So there's going, you know, you're going to... Um, have an extreme monetary penalty here if you do not come 
and uh, fight for Israel as one. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, which again we ought to take as a supernatural intervention, I think. Um, It's possible not. It's possible just this human thing, but... um, I think given that he gives the spirit to Saul here, the dread of the Lord falling upon the people ought to be seen as the active action of God upon the people. And they came out as one man. Okay, so this is all, I mean, this is all fine so far. We see Israel standing up for its brothers, coming out as one man. We see nice civil unity here. Um, verse 8 when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So a quite, the, quite the, a sizable force here. And you can see on the study note, you know, it's interesting down at 11.8, Judah, which is um, Saul's tribe, Benjamin, was small and previously held in disrespect by Judah, which sometimes exhibited a separatist or isolationist attitude toward the other tribes. You know, and that's true because there's the ten in the north and the two in the, in the bottom, the two in the bottom off, obviously, Judah. Okay, so even Judah comes with their 30,000. Verse 9, And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, uh, Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. Here's some plain military deceit going on. Um, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So obviously the men of Jabesh here say this to uh, um, their oppressor here, Nahash. So very interesting, very interesting parallels because we see, you know, as the spirit of the Lord um, falls upon Saul, we see various blessings given to him. And in this blessing, the, the spirit of the Lord falling upon him leads him out to battle on behalf of his brothers. And we have quite the parallel of that in in Jesus, where Jesus, having been baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then the texts of the gospel say the Holy Spirit um, drives him into the wilderness. And there, for 40 days and 40 nights, he, he fasts and is, is driven by the Holy Spirit into conflict on behalf of his brothers, that's us, um, into conflict with the unholy spirit, Satan. So, again, just in the same way that the Spirit falls upon Saul and Saul goes out to fight for his brothers, the Spirit falls upon Christ in the waters of baptism and he goes out to fight Satan for his brothers. So, we have some interesting parallels there uh, to consider. And again, we can see Christ very much in the background of this text shining through. All right, you've got to love the military deceit in verse 10. Hey, tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you which that's actually going to coincide with the the cavalry, as it were, arriving, Saul and the rest of Israel. Verse 11, And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So it's fantastic. And it's a success. 
Saul leads the people to victory over an, an oppressor um, and a specifically uh, grotesque kind of oppressor in Nahash, the Ammonite. Nahash, the plucker of right eyeballs. <laughs> okay, that takes us into verse 12. Um, let's just mosey on. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Okay, well, who are these folks? These are the folks back in uh, verse 27 of chapter 10, the worthless fellows saying, how can this man save us? So, again, there's internal conflict. Saul keeps his peace. There's external conflict. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul and he handles it. Now they want to handle the internal conflict that was sort of left over. Bring the men that we may put them to death, the people say. Verse 13, But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. I mean, you couldn't hope for a better answer. This is incredible, especially given where we know Saul goes. But this is, uh, this is incredible. So he gives the Lord the credit for victory. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Not myself, not me, not my military genius, but the Lord. And then he also says, on account of the Lord's, this is the argument really that he's making, on account of the Lord's mercy to us, we're going to be merciful to these who have spoken ill of me. So this is everything a king is to be, you know, faithful to God, loving toward his brothers, merciful toward his enemies. It couldn't, it couldn't have started better. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Okay. Verse 15, and then we'll get into what this means. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So as much as as much as you know, chapter 10 was a was a a coronation and a selection of Samuel. I mean, here he is received by popular acclaim, so to speak. And I guess if you're going to count kind of the third type of coronation event, um, again, he was anointed by Saul individually. He was selected by God at the end of chapter 10. And here in 11, the, the people, because he's just led them to victory, uh, the people themselves... Um, accept him and make him king. Okay, Gilgal means turning, the study note says. It's located between the Jordan River and Jericho, and once again it marks a turning point in Israel's history. This goes back to, to Joshua and some of the major events um, that took place as the people were uh, coming into the Promised Land. You know, you remember that's the entry point to the Promised Land. Samuel had made it an annual stop on his judicial circuit. Saul's kingship was privately announced at Ramah. That's what I was referring to back in chapter 9 with the anointing. And solemnized at Mizpah. That's what we just saw where he was hiding in the baggage, chapter 10. The people officially affirm him here in a solemn public assembly, here being chapter 11. <clears throat> 
Okay, and in regards to the peace offerings and what's going on, prepared as a sign of reconciliation between all the tribes and the Lord. They mark a ratification of the covenant similar to that in Sinai. The people have offerings also in recognition of the monarchy as a continuation of the theocracy for which they finally rejoice in grand style. Okay, the point being, you have a renewal of the covenant. And you have these renewal, uh, renewals of the covenant at various times, usually led by a major prophet um, and after some vic major victory that God has granted the people or major salvific act on the part of God. <clears throat> Here, no different. Um, this is all done then uh, um, north of the Jordan at... Uh, at Gilgal, which means turning. And so um, this is, again, like this is like if the book ended here, it would kind of be this fairy tale. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. Over here on the map, and this map really, if you do have a Lutheran Study Bible, I'm looking at page 451. If you don't have a Lutheran Study Bible, you might want to get one. It's an excellent resource, even if you're not Lutheran. The, the maps, the footnotes, the teaching, the cross-references, just objectively excellent. Just objectively excellent, and better than any other study Bible I've seen out there. Um, you can see uh, in that map on page 451, if you look at the little, the little insert there, um, where it's got the Great Sea, and then you can see Sedan up to the north, and there in that, uh, in that gray area, you can see that that's the area ruled by Saul. So it's like a zoom out of the larger map that's you know, underneath and to the right of this smaller map. But this gives you a sense for how much he reigns. There you see Ammon from the Ammonites who we just saw and they're off on the east. You can see how they came over to the west. You can see how the um, Jordan River goes up to the north. <clears throat> and then you can just kind of get a sense for the larger region. As you go to the map that's underneath it and to the right, then obviously you get a bit more specificity in terms of um, where these places are. And a number of these places we haven't encountered yet. In fact, we're going to. This map is sort of given that we would refer back to it. Because we're going to see a bunch of major battles here. And those indicated by the sort of explosion-looking marks, um, broken stars, whatever they are. And then you can see the prominent cities. Um, you can see, for example, like to the to the west of the Salt Sea, to the northwest of the Salt Sea. You can see Bethel, Mizpah, of course, from chapter 10, Ramah, Gibeah. Um, you know, you can see all of these places that have come up in our text and will come up again. You've got Jerusalem just south of there. And, of course, Gibeah is the place where um, uh, Saul, or, yeah, Saul is seated right now as king. We'll see that transition over to Jerusalem. Bethlehem below that. So, yeah, there you can see if you if you go over to the Salt Sea to the east and then go up the Jordan River um, on the right-hand side, you'll see that uh, kind of explosion mark, Jabesh Gilead. There's where the battle was fought um, against uh, Nahash. So just interesting to try to get some sense of the geography of these things going on. All right, chapter 12, verse 1. Maybe we'll refer back there as we go on. We'll see. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, 
and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. Now, of course, his sons haven't exactly been pillars of faithfulness. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. And, of course, that takes us all the way back to the very beginning of this text, where Samuel, of course, is the, is the miracle child who then is uh, of Hannah, who then is um, brought to the temple and serves in the temple and um, comes to replace Eli in, in many respects and then serves this prophetic role and um, is in many ways the last of the judges, certainly the last of the, the judge over all Israel and the faithful judge, even though his sons judge somewhat. He's really the last of the judges. Prophet, kingmaker, all of these things. So we keep these things in mind. And um, He really was you know, nothing and became everything. So there's a reversal kind of motif like being humbled and then being exalted here even in the person of, of Samuel. Well, he continues, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Verse 3, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Um, reference to the king, um, but there's reference to the, the anointed one, in effect, the Messiah. And so then we can see how uh, the anointed one as the Messiah, as the king, ends up coalescing and pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus. So he continues rhetorically, Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Um, I mean, certainly a statement. Certainly he means this, honestly. I don't mean to take it away, but it's, it's also rhetorical. Like, so that if there was an accusation, no doubt he'd repay it. I mean, there's, there's a genuineness to this. It's kind of a, a beautiful thing on behalf of a leader to do this, especially if he's sort of departing in a, in a, in his normal, from his normal capacity. And he just sort of says, like, if anyone has anything against me, that's, let's clear the air. It also is certainly rhetorical because he knows that there isn't, and so he's testifying to you know, the faithfulness of his ministry to the people. So, um, you know, again, end of verse 3, testify against me and I will restore it to you. Verse 4, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So, you know, this is, this is incredible. And uh, what follows, you're really going to want to pay attention. As the, as the editors have subtitled this, this is Samuel's farewell address. Well, they've, of course, like, again, as we said, things couldn't, have, could, things couldn't be going better. And then... And then uh, the covenant is sort of restored um, at, uh, at Gilgal. And now he's going to 
uh, remember to the people all the things that the Lord has done for them. So he brings to mind their very first leaders, Moses and Aaron, how he is the one who led them out of Egypt, of course, in, in miracle and through the Red Sea. And then he's going to recount um, the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. All right, verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So again, you remember Jacob going into Egypt due to the famine, and then eventually uh, you know, the Pharaoh that remembers Joseph and gave Joseph and thus all the, all the people um, a place of honor over in Goshen. Like that all gets forgotten and they're turned into slaves. So the Egyptians oppressed them. And then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. That is the promised land. And so again, just starting at the beginning with the people and telling them not only who they are, but that they only are who they are because God has made them as such. Then verse 9, a bit of a warning. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. You remember a number of these instances from the judges, um, with Sisera, you remember Deborah and Jael and all of that, and um, the Philistines, you can remember um, Samson, for example. And um, they fought against them. So the people betrayed God. Um, God, you know, as according to the covenant, delivered them over to exactly what they wanted, which was to be like their enemies and to have their enemies rule over them instead of God. And then God is merciful, so he sends saviors um, to help them from these very people. And that's what comes next, really. Um, verse 10, And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And again, you recognize those names as judges. So it is the Lord who sends these heroes, these judges, these saviors. Um, and they delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And then he brings it up to the current events. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. This is essentially just a restatement of the covenant principles back on Sinai 
um, it's the same kind of thing. Like, again, the expectation of the people and the king isn't that they'll somehow be sinless. Um, for, like, as evidence against that, the entire sacrificial system is given by God. You know, the entire the, the tabernacle, the entire book of Leviticus is given that they might have forgiveness. So a violation of this covenant um, is really to turn to gross idolatry and to um, serve the gods of the nations around them, to entrust themselves to the people, to the nations around them, to their military might rather than to the strength of the Lord. Like that's what, that's what really is a, indicates a, a breach in the covenant and thus God will will turn away from them. But as long as they don't engage in that kind of gross idolatry, uh, you know, the Lord will be your God and it will be well. Um, verse 15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So again, in, in contrast to the ancient world, it's not like the gods just sort of follow you and your king and bless you and whatever you're supposed to do and occasionally you've got to appease him. No, rather God has the standard of what's right and wrong and he expects Israel and her king to follow that standard. So he isn't merely their servant in that sense, um, but he demands that they conform themselves to righteousness and then he is their servant. Again, righteousness defined here not as sinlessness, but as just... Not, not crass idolatry. Well, in exactly the way that's explained, you know, obey the voice of the Lord. Don't rebel against him or his commandment. All right, verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. All right, so a part of Samuel's farewell speech is even though he has obeyed them, and again with permission of the Lord, and given them the king that they wanted, he has only done so by warning them, and then by sending this, I mean, by, by orchestrating this final sign, um, again, it's not the season for thunder and rain. That's his question, is it not wheat harvest today? And then the thunder and rain come, and that's the sign that their wickedness is indeed great, not just in his opinion, but actually in the sight of the Lord. So, uh, to the people's credit, they greatly fear the Lord and Samuel. Yeah, the study note points out, too, that this disaster will harm the wheat harvest by creating conditions for mold. So, there is a more than just an awe. There seems to be a punitive aspect of this as well. Um, such an unusual occurrence in May or June brings fear upon the people, reminiscent of the Exodus when the Lord displayed his power. Like, like referencing, I think, the ten plagues. Samuel also demonstrates his own prophetic power, illustrating his ability to communicate with the Lord. All right, verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. Which is beautiful, because they want Samuel to intercede 
And of course, we've seen Samuel as a type of Christ, our great intercessor. So Samuel is built in his form in this respect. So pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So they recognize their error, but it's too late. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You know, what's the implication there? It's not spelled out in our 21st century ham-fisted terms, but the implication here is that God forgives you. You know, do not be afraid. Um, That's absolution in this context. You have done all this evil, yet, but do not despair. You know, do not turn away from God. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. Do not apostatize, but serve the Lord with all your heart. So there's, I mean, there, you don't need to use the words forgiveness to have forgiveness here, but that's exactly what this is. They're being forgiven and they're being told to turn to the Lord with their whole hearts. Verse 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Almost certainly there, though it's not so clear in English, is reference to idols. Idols are always the empty things and the things that are nothing. And the things that are the creature rather than creator and deaf rather than hearing and dumb rather than speaking and all the things that God is not. So that's the, you know, as well, I'm sure you can throw like wealth and military might and that kind of thing, you know, politics, trusting princes and that kind of thing in there too. But probably, because all of those are crass forms of idolatry, but here, um, idolatry of all kinds then denounced. So Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You know, and here's the the beauty of it. You know, the Lord will not forsake his people. So there's the, there's the long-suffering, the forgiveness, the long-suffering, the patience, the mercy of God. And then he says here, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So he has unilaterally and of himself claimed you. Like this is pure monergism. And he's made you into his people. And so he's, because you are his people, you bear his name, his reputation, right? And for his name's sake, in a sense for his reputation's sake, for his identity's sake, he will not forsake you. You know, a beautiful statement of who the Lord is. And again, if you if, don't think too abstractly about this, like have in your mind Christ, because it's these scriptures that testify of him. So have in your mind Christ, and that suddenly fleshes this out and makes this quite you know, concrete, and you don't have to grope in your mind for like, like who is the Lord and who is this Lord. It's like Jesus will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. You know, he's given us his name in baptism. We bear his name as Christians. You know, he is Christ, and we are his Christians, his Christians. So he will not forsake his people. Jesus will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased Jesus to make you a people for himself. And that's indeed exactly what uh, Peter teaches us, taking up this language, language found in Exodus, um, that in holy baptism, 
He takes we who are not a kingdom and makes us into his kingdom, and we who are not a people and makes us into his people, um, we who are not priests into his royal priesthood, etc. So all of, these, all of these Old Testament things, I mean, underneath them, deeper than them, is Christ and the reality of what Christ is going to do in his church. All these Old Testament things reflect that in one way or another, both positively and negatively, what it is and what it isn't. So that when it arrives and is manifest in, in time and space and arrives and is manifest to us in our lives, we recognize it for what it is and we see it um, as the fulfillment and the betterment of, of all these Old Testament uh, things. So, just beautiful, beautiful lines worth meditating on here. I mean, all this from First Samuel, from the Old Testament. You can make a great case here um, for this verse just being foundational. All, all you really need for a theology of grace and mercy, for a theology ultimately of the atonement, if his name's sake is at what's at stake. All right, be that as it may, let's leave off and go to verse 23. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So while this is a farewell address, Samuel isn't saying, you know, (laughs) I'm going into retirement. You can find me on the golf course, uh, and I most certainly won't be praying for you anymore. No, even in his farewell address, he's saying, far be it from me that I'm going to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Again, look at, how, look at how this works. I don't mean to make too much of this, but this is beautiful because it's the same New Testament, di- New Testament dynamic and that we find ourselves in as, as Christians. But it's like we don't want to sin against the Lord. That's the reason to pray for others. Sometimes we overemphasize this in Lutheranism. We overemphasize, well, it's just for the neighbor. In the New Testament, you find, a, you find a very different motivation. I mean, while that's certainly there, like, think of, think of Peter with Jesus at the end of John. Peter, son of Simon, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. In other words, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Then take care of my Christians. Here you see that same idea, like, I'm not going to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He doesn't say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sin against you. He says, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. I mean, to flip this and reverse it, it's just like, because I love the Lord, I will continue to pray for you. We make far too little, when we say, you know, and Luther's got this line, it's like it works when trying to articulate justification. It really is, it tends to be misleading, at least the way we use it today in terms of sanctification, the Christian life. You know, so the, the saying goes, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Well, you've got really, to really fetch that out and be careful with how you define that. It's like, okay, in the sphere of justification, no, God doesn't need your works. But then, but your neighbor does, that's not, I mean, that's not really even in the sphere of justification. So then are we talking about the whole Christian life? God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does? Well, what do you mean by need? Yeah, true, God doesn't need anything. But does God want your good works? Can you as an individual actually have the motivation for your love for your neighbor, not so much your neighbor, but actually God? Perhaps even God in your neighbor, like Christ in your neighbor? Like whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me? It seems to me that we've cheated ourselves out of this motivation, and it's like the most central motivation, especially when the people around you, you really don't feel like serving them. (laughs) 
<laughs> you really don't feel like loving them. I know this, none of this ever happens to us domestically, does it? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in the house, like you look around at the people and you're like, you're like, gosh, I just really don't feel like doing one more thankless thing or one more thing that I'm going to get the opposite of thanks, which is, you know, somebody wiping their feet off on me or something. And where's your motivation to love? And then you kind of get like that, that unhelpful Lutheranism shouted at you. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. It's like, well, there goes all my motivation. Um, but what if, what if the precise way of serving God is serving your neighbor? What if the precise way you have of loving God is loving those who don't deserve love? What if that's precisely the, me- the mechanic of sanctification of the Christian life? What if that's the impetus to do anything as Christians for our neighbor? What if it's not for our neighbor at all? See, there's, that's maybe really where I get a little prickly and a little controversial. What if it's not for the neighbor at all? What if it's just for God? Are we precluded from doing things just for God simply because we love him? If so, you've got a big problem with Matthew 6 where Jesus teaches to uh, pray fast and give alms and in such a way that only our Heavenly Father sees it in secret and rewards. Seems to me that we've uh, done ourselves a bit of a disservice by hiding this kind of theology and this kind of way of thinking. Again, we love Him because He first loved us and it is precisely our love for Him that flows out to neighbor can't put the neighbor ahead of God or you've got a big problem and you're going to just run flat out of gas real fast because the neighbor is not in and of themselves is not worthy to be served but God is always is yeah well I've probably overspoken the point but there's nobody here physically to stop me so off I went yeah that's um that's worth reflecting on here in verse 22 or wait maybe it's uh no verse 23 moreover As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So, you know, as long as he's alive, he's going to pray to the Lord for them, and then in service, like that's vertical, and then horizontal, he's going to instruct you in the good and the right way. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Yeah, again, look at that. It's just service straight to the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. And there's also not this kind of like cheap gotcha theology of like with all your heart, but you can't. Ha ha, gotcha, you're a sinner. Like that's not what's going on here. That's just exegetically dishonest. Like, this is definitely a positive commandment. This is what he, I mean, this is what Christianity looks like. They're trusting in the Lord who is their deliverer, who has promised them a Messiah, who has promised them final deliverance. They're trusting in him already, and he's encouraging them, fear the Lord, that is, trust in the Lord. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Serve him faithfully, not unfaithfully, not with lip service, not with hypocrisy, but faithfully, with all your heart. I mean, to have a split... Again, we get so twisted around the axle here and in just unhelpful ways. With all your heart just means like not a divided heart. What is it to have a divided heart? To have an idol with part of your heart and to have Yahweh with the other part of your heart. I mean, to have the Lord with all your heart, biblically Old Testament style, doesn't mean some sort of perfection of the heart. Uh, It just means 
having Yahweh alone as your God. He already knows your heart's imperfect. Doesn't mean you can't love him with all your heart. Otherwise, you've got to just tear these lines out of the scriptures. You've got to do some theological acrobatics, dialectical theology, and a bunch of nonsense. Okay, so only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Yeah, again, see, there's the impetus for how is it, how is it that you fear the Lord? How is it that you serve him faithfully? And how is it that you do so with all your heart? Consider what great things he has done for you. You know, there's the source of all of it. For them, it looked different than it does for us. For them, it's the exodus and it's all these other things. And of course, it's the promise of a Savior to come. For us, it's the one who has come, is coming, is present with us. You know, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, his, his ongoing presence, all his wisdom and protection and guidance and blessing, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit and all the other fruits of the spirits and the infinite fruits of the Spirit and the infinite gifts he gives, even on a daily basis. That's, that's what it means for us to consider what great things he has done for you. You know, it's precisely where we find ourselves fearing other things rather than the Lord or serving other things faithfully rather than the Lord or certainly ser- serving God in a double-hearted kind of way. Um, I mean, how do we bring ourselves back from that? Well, you consider what great things he has done for you. That's the, that's the way home. It's the way back, and it's the source forward. Okay, verse 25. But if you... Oops, excuse me there. Just pulled my microphone down. Verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Yeah, so there's the, I mean, there's the, uh, there's the covenant. You know, you still do wickedly, you turn away from God, you turn to idolatry, you turn to trusting other nations, etc. Then you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Yeah, so the king is only going to be helpful to them insofar God is with them, and insofar as they don't you know, utterly turn away from God and apostatize. Okay, chapter 13, verse 1. Um, yeah, interesting. As you see there, you see an ellipsis, three dots, Saul was dot, 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 and you see a note. And it says the number is lacking in Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew text and in the Septuagint, the Greek text. So, we don't know. We don't know. Um, You can see in uh, the study note for chapter 13, verse 1, um, see the ESV notes. Well, that's what we just did. And then verse establishes the formula that introduces the reigns of later kings. The omission of two numbers reminds us that fallible scribes copied the texts of the Bible but their mistakes in copying have not compromised biblical doctrine. God allowed these small details to drop out. Because Saul had a son, Jonathan, old enough to be an officer in the army, he was probably at least 40. As subsequent verses indicate, other details are also lacking in the account of Saul's reign. The omissions coincide with God's judgment on Saul's lack of faith and good judgment. It is as though God is shortening Saul's time as a commentary on his reign. (laughs) Quite interesting. Well, so anyway, that describes the ellipsis there. Saul was, we don't know how many years old, we would assume 40 or more, when he began to reign. 
anyhow, which means he was in his 30s when he was hiding in the baggage. <laughs> and he reigned blank, uh, you know, ellipsis, dot, 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 and two years over Israel. And that's, there's the commentary that it's as if, like, it's as if God was shortening his reign. Because as we've seen, we've been off to this tremendous start by God's grace and blessing, and then it goes downhill real fast. Real fast. So that gives us a nice enough place to stop for this week. We'll pick up next week with, uh, unfortunately,